says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And Father, we just ask now as we continue in this time of worship by opening up the word of God together to let you speak to us from your word that you've given to us by your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that the condition that we're in right now, you know each and every one of us in this room, that you take away the distractions in our minds or other things that are maybe burdens or concerns on our heart. Lord, you're worthy of our attention and of our worship, and we want to continue now to worship by opening the word of God and letting you speak something to us, God. We pray that by your spirit, you would prepare us, that you'd give us an ear to hear, and that you would say something personally to us. We expectantly believe, Lord, there's something you want to say to each one of us. And we ask now that your spirit would teach us and speak to us. And we ask that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So let me take a stab at this. Maybe this morning, here you are, and you came to church on Easter. And yet, though here you are in church on Easter, maybe everything in your life is not exactly the way that you wish that it was. And you came to church on a holiday. That's a great start and a good thing. But here you are in a church on a holiday, and maybe your life's not kind of like a holiday right now. Maybe everything is not the way that you wish it was or want it to be. Well, what if I were to tell you that I know a way that no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how you honestly feel right now, that you can still rejoice and experience joy in the midst of things. And I tell you something, that is true because the answer is upon thinking upon what is declared in this Bible passage that we're looking at together this morning. In 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, we find Peter here, a person just like you and I, who didn't have a perfect life. In fact, he's writing to a group of people in this particular letter who were actually going through a time of suffering themselves and great difficulty. But yet we find Peter here rejoicing and celebrating in worship regarding some of the multitude of benefits that are available to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ coming back to life from the dead. We'll see in these verses here that through Jesus' completed work, his life, his death upon a cross for our sins, and his resurrection or raising back to life from the dead, through that completed work, we see a number of things in these very verses here that have become available to us as benefits. We see that God extends to us. Peter's going to say abundant mercy as the result of that, that God gives to us the experience of a spiritual life and the ability to actually have a relationship with God, not just to be religious, but to actually have a living personal relationship with God that we'll see as well. God provides us hope and who doesn't need a little bit more hope in their life? He talks about a living hope and we'll see as well in verse four that God also grants to us a guarantee of an eternal inheritance in heaven. Again, all these benefits stem from that finished and victorious work 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice, if you look with me in the text here, sort of right smack in the middle of our verses here, we see the basis and the reason that we can experience these things. Sort of right there in the center, look at the end of verse 3, there's that statement right in the center of verse 3, or the end of verse 3, the center of our statements. It says there, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is all available, these benefits that we'll look at as we look at these verses this morning, all of this is available through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's by that and because of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, these spiritual benefits are available to us. And before we jump in together, let me briefly explain why that's true. Because the Bible teaches us, whether we want to believe it about ourselves or not, or whether anyone's ever told us, the Bible teaches to us that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. That every one of us has turned to his own way. That's the nature of humanity. The Bible says there is no difference for all. That means including everyone and excluding no one. The Bible says there's no difference. One difference that's not true among anybody in humanity is that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Simply put, that means we've all made mistakes. Whether we've thought things that we should not have or we've said something that we shouldn't or we've done things, the one thing we all share in common on this earth, and in some ways it's encouraging, we're all failures. We all make mistakes. We do things wrong and we have a sense of guilt over our own mistakes and failures, our sins, what the Bible speaks of against God. And as a result, no person on earth, the Bible teaches, measures up to God's standard, which is holiness. God's a holy God. Heaven is a holy place. And so therefore, uh, people with guilt and sin upon our lives really are unable to enter into heaven. And we all have sin and guilt in our lives. And therefore, God is a holy God and heaven is a holy place. God being righteous cannot allow us access into heaven in our sinful condition. There's a problem that exists. We actually deserve the judgment of God and to be cast into the lake of fire or hell because we've sinned against our creator, against a holy God. But the good news, and I'm sure most of us have heard this before, probably one of the most famous Bible verses that exists, Jesus declared that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes upon him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The next verse that many don't know is Jesus went on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And this is the wonderful news particularly that we celebrate on Easter that Jesus came to be the perfect mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus, that God took upon himself the rescue mission that we needed because we've sinned against him. That Jesus came as God, God took on a second nature, he became a man so that he could be in touch with divinity, with God, and at the same time in touch with humanity, mankind, and build a perfect bridge. And Jesus lived the sinless life that I could never live, and you could never live. And then as the sinless, perfect life being lived by him as a man, being fully God and fully man, in touch with both, Jesus then offered his life as the substitute for ours. 
And Jesus provided what's acceptable to God the Father for us to have access into heaven and then stepped into our place and suffered and died upon a cross for our sin as we celebrated Friday evening, Good Friday. That Jesus was crucified for our sins. The punishment I deserve and you deserve for our sin, Jesus stepped in our place as the innocent one on our behalf as the guilty and he said, I will die in your place, suffered and died for you and me. Let his blood be poured out so that we could have ourselves forgiveness of sins the bible says god demonstrates his love in this that while we were yet sinners christ died for us jesus embraced the wrath of god he took the judgment of god upon himself and paid the necessary price to offer us forgiveness that's why when john the baptist saw jesus walking that day he said behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world because the blood of Jesus Christ is able to cleanse us from all sin and as a way for God in heaven to validate that he's fully satisfied with the finished work of Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And it's almost as if the father in heaven said amen to that really loud. And the way he said amen to that really loud is three days after Jesus died and was buried. He raised him from the dead. And that was like God's way of giving a loud, happy hallelujah, amen on the earth. He raised Jesus from the dead to show I'm fully satisfied. What he did is sufficient. And, and so we read here, it's through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The language literally indicates the, the raising of Jesus out from among the realm of the dead. Jesus himself said in, in Revelation chapter 1, I am he who lives and who was dead, and behold, I'm alive evermore. Jesus, how wonderfully has done what no one else has ever done, and by his authority and power has defeated the death process. He overcame the power of death, and this shows Jesus' victory over the power of sin. And now as a victorious Lord and a risen and living Savior, he can offer to us so many wonderful things. Forgiveness of our own sins. Access into heaven after we die. Power over sin. Spiritual life. And all this is available, Peter says, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because of that reality that's why we can rejoice greatly as we consider Jesus rising back to life from the dead. So look with me in verse 3 as Peter is again thinking about this reality of Jesus raising back to life. He begins verse 3 by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is basically just an enthusiastic expression of praise, a, a, a spontaneous word of worship coming from a man with an incredibly grateful heart whose life had been powerfully transformed by the work of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his own life. And as Peter pondered this reality, the life of Jesus, then the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus back to life from the dead and the fact that he's a living savior, that meant so very much to Peter personally. And he appreciated it so deeply that when he thought about it, he couldn't help blessing God. He wasn't even concerned whether or not God blessed him. He said, no, I want to bless God. So often we want God to bless us. Nothing wrong with that, certainly. But Peter said, no, blessed be God. Blessed be God. As he, again, Peter, remember, was a man 
who was very, very familiar with his own failures and his own weaknesses and his own life struggles and problems and the encounter he had had with the Lord Jesus had transformed his life. So he declares, blessed be God. Interesting, that word blessed that Peter used in verse 3 there, it's where we get our English word today to eulogize. And when we do a memorial service for someone who dies, typically we try and find someone or a few people who will do what we call the eulogy. They eulogize the person who's died. And again, the, the, the eulogy is basically the time where you speak well in honor of someone. You speak praiseworthy things about them to give honor to their life, who they were and what they've done. The purpose is to give them honor for their life and who they were and what they meant to you and the good things they've done. And this is the idea of Peter here. He uses that word when he says, blessed be God, our father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter hears this expression towards God as he thought about all that God had done, as he thought about all who God was to him. And what he had done for him through Jesus, he wanted to properly just bless and honor God. He wanted to speak well of him. He wanted to render praise and worship towards him. And I'll tell you, as we ponder who God is, and as we ponder what God's done for us through Jesus, that should certainly prompt us to joyfully celebrate and worship. It should cause us to say, yeah, things aren't the way that I wish they were this Easter. Wow, God's good. And wow, what God's done. And it gives us a reason to still rejoice and to be able to celebrate and to bless God and to offer Him praise in the midst of that. So let's look, if we could, in verses 3 and 4 here at a few of these benefits that come through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The first one I draw your attention to that we see here in verse 3 is that through Jesus' resurrection, God extends to us abundant mercy. That's because of Jesus' resurrection. God extends to us abundant mercy. Again, you see verse 3, look at it with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, abundant mercy. That word mercy that's used there speaks of God's kindness, God's kindness that is shown towards the miserable and afflicted condition of man with a joint desire to want to relieve that miserable condition. That's the term that's used there, mercy. It's, it's God not giving us what we deserve, but it speaks of, of that God feels a kindness towards us in our miserable condition and he wants to relieve that condition in our lives because all of us by nature have this miserable and afflicted condition due to the plague of sin in our lives. It's something that is a, in a sense, a spiritual cancer in all of our lives. Ephesians 2 says, apart from Jesus saving us, that we naturally begin life walking under the influence of both sin and Satan controlling our lives now we may not see it we may not even recognize it i spent many years not realizing i thought i was doing my own thing i didn't realize invisibly i was a slave i was shackled i didn't have control over my life somebody with invisible puppet strings was controlling my life and ruining my life and sabotaging my life and the biblical reality teaches that sin and Satan are controlling us. It says that we walk 
under the influence of such things, conducting ourselves in the lust of our sinful flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh. And it says, by nature, we're children of wrath. That doesn't sound good, but that's what our sin honestly justly deserves. Jesus himself said, whoever sins is a slave of sin. See, sin is enslaving. It's not just something that we do. It actually has an enslaving quality. And Jesus said we actually are slaves of sin. It says this in Titus 3. It says we ourselves were once all foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. See, the Bible, because God loves us, speaks to us very honestly and the Bible says of us though it may in a sense break our self-esteem a little bit the Bible says we're depraved morally as people that we're lost that we're enslaved and we're in a wretched condition spiritually yet in that condition God desires to relieve us God loves us and he wants to help us in that condition. And he showed that kindness and mercy towards us through sending Jesus. Listen to what Titus 3 goes on to say in verse 4 to 6. It says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared toward man, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we see in the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's through the resurrection of Jesus, God extends to us, Peter calls it, abundant mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve in our miserable, wretched condition, but instead he extends to us help and relief from that condition of sinfulness because God is now fully satisfied with the work of Jesus. And because of that, God is wanting to, God is able to, through Jesus being alive, extend to us, Peter says, abundant measures of great mercy. And I'll tell you, what a wonderful thing how that applies. I mean, that applies initially when a person realizes their condition before God and before we came to know God and before we accepted Jesus, when we called upon the name of the Lord for our salvation, no matter what condition we were in or, or no matter what our past, that God extended abundant mercy to us and maybe no one else would have. And listen, maybe you're here this morning. Listen, maybe you find yourself in a condition where you realize, man, yeah, I am full of hate or I'm in bondage to living this way. Or I, and, and listen, it, I tell you something. It does not matter what you've done it does not matter how wretched you may be. It does not matter what others think about you or what extent of failures or what you have done. In that condition, God wants to be merciful to you. And God wants to extend to you relief from the guilt and deliverance from the punishment of that sin. And if you call upon the name of the Lord, he wants to show you abundant mercy. And he'll give you mercy no matter what you've done or what your past and how wonderful for those of us who are still at this point following Jesus since the day of our salvation. We come to Christ. He shows us abundant mercy. But let's be honest, even when we're walking with Jesus and following him, we, we still fail on occasion. Maybe this last year hasn't been the greatest year. Maybe this last week or last month hasn't been the greatest. We fail. We sin still. But Jesus' life 
the fact that he's alive from the dead offers us abundant mercy. Abundant mercy is the Savior and the mediator. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, through Jesus being alive from the dead, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And every time you still fail as a Christian, you can cry out to Jesus and you can say, Lord, man, I've been blowing it again. I need your mercy in my life, Lord. Lord, I need grace to change, to get back on track, Lord. And to wonderfully know that it's a throne of grace and abundant mercy is available as a benefit as the result of Jesus rising from the dead. Another thing we see in our text here, another benefit through Jesus rising from the dead, is that Peter speaks in verse 3 of God giving us the experience of a spiritual life. He gives to us, he extends to us the experience of spiritual life. Or we might even say to have relationship with Jesus, to have relationship with God. Real relationship. Again, not religion, but relationship. Notice it says through the resurrection of Jesus, verse 3. He says there in the center of the verse, through that God has begotten us again. That word begotten basically is a term that speaks of being born or God has caused us to be born yet again. Some of your translations render that God has caused us to be born again or we've had the privilege to receive new birth. See, the Bible speaks of the need and the reality of experiencing a second birth. A spiritual birth, just like your physical, natural birth. The Bible speaks of a spiritual birth as well. It describes what actually happens when a person believes upon and receives the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And the way God chose to speak about that metaphorically of, of our salvation experience is it's a spiritual birth. It's the beginning of a spiritual life. When you believe upon Jesus and open your heart to him and, and invite him to come into your life and receive him as the savior for your sin and you begin to follow him as your Lord, the Bible says there's a spiritual change or conversion that happens. A life is changed and we are born again a second time. There's a second birth because that's the moment we begin or start our spiritual life. In the same way, little quick science lesson here, you only get into this world one way. The store key doesn't drop you off. You were born. And when you were born, you began to experience physical life. That's it. When, you're li when you were born, the experience of, of this natural physical world starts to happen through the birth process. Well, in the same way, God is just saying in order to experience the spiritual world, things that are spiritual you need to have a spiritual birth at some point in your life. That's what starts the spiritual life. See, the Bible teaches from Genesis, from the very beginning pages, God and Adam were walking together in perfect fellowship, but God in his love gave a prohibition to Adam to let it be a willing relationship. He told Adam, in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Gave him one command, one prohibition. And we know what happens in the story. Adam chooses to disregard God's command and God keeps his word. The day that Adam chose to disobey God's command, 
He sinned against God and God had said he would surely die and he did. At that point, death as a consequence entered into Adam's life as a man, as the first man through which all mankind would come. And at that point, Adam became a mortal being. He would now experience death. And that's why we all experience sickness, illness, and death in some form. Death entered the world through one man. It's a consequence of sin. God said it would be. And so we all experience the death process at some point. We're all going to face it. But more than that, Adam also died spiritually within. Because remember, he lost fellowship with God. He had been walking around with God. And the moment he partook of that forbidden fruit if you would he didn't drop dead on the spot physically if you remember he would ultimately die but another thing happened he started all of a sudden feeling guilty he tried to cover himself and he started hiding from god because god comes into the garden where they used to walk together and he says adam where are you he now is hiding from god because something happened the light went out spiritually, if you would, and he didn't have fellowship with God the way he did when he was created initially. He lost relationship with God. And the Bible teaches that through Adam, we've all been born of him, last I checked, that through Adam, we're all born physically alive, but spiritually dead. That is, we're not born with a capacity automatically to have a relationship with God who is spirit. And this is why at some point, God must give to us a spiritual birth. We must receive a spiritual birth to come alive and have a relationship with God. This is what Peter's describing here, that we must be born again or begotten again. God must cause this to happen. Again, Ephesians 2 says that we're born spiritually dead inside due to sin. But then it says this, but God who's rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loves us, even when we're dead in trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. So the way that we receive a spiritual birth or come alive spiritually, God gives that to us when we receive the life of his son Jesus. When we receive the spiritual and eternal life of the son of God, when we receive that, God causes his spirit to enter into our life and that awakens us spiritually. When Jesus enters into your life, when you receive him, at that moment, he who is spirit because he is God, he makes you or I then come alive spiritually. And this is how the spiritual birth happens. Now, all of a sudden, we're awakened to that which is spiritual. If you would, the lights are turned back on like they were turned off with Adam. The lights turned on. And now all of a sudden what was dead within us comes alive and we can experience a spiritual relationship with God who is spirit. As Peter says this, I think perhaps he's even thinking about perhaps the words of Jesus himself. Again, John 3, earlier in the chapter before John 3, 16, Jesus is having a conversation that was very vital, listen, with a very religious man. He was a ruler of the synagogue. He knew the scriptures incredibly well. He prayed prayers every day. He attended the worship services. He did many spiritual practices. This guy would walk circles around you and I with spiritual routine and ritual. And yet he sensed something was missing in his life, Nicodemus. And he comes to Jesus thinking, oh, man, I am I'm religiously religious. What's missing? Something's still missing. And it's at that point Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
So he's trying to reconcile. Well, I was born again. What are you talking about? He's trying to figure it out naturally. Go back into my mother's womb, have a second birth experience. Aren't I a little big for that now? That'd be kind of weird, you know. He's trying to put it together. And Jesus is trying to clarify him. No, Nicodemus, what you're missing is just like that physical birth, you need a spiritual birth. Because Jesus went on to say to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water, the breaking of the water in the womb, and born of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. He was trying to clarify for Nicodemus, just like you were born in the flesh physically, if you want to have a relationship and experience with God who's spirit and understand what's spiritual and have access to the kingdom of God, which is spiritual, you have to have a spiritual birth at some point in your life and it's when we receive the life of the risen Jesus it's not until the moment we do that that we then are born spiritually we're begotten again we're born again born a second time and God causes us to have a spiritual birth and we start the spiritual life and this is available to us because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead and it's the living Jesus who's alive when we receive him. He, by the Spirit, enters into our life and makes us come alive spiritually to have a relationship with God. A third thing Peter mentions here as well in verse 3, a benefit of being raised, Jesus being raised from the dead, is that God also provides to us through that a life full of hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus, God provides to us a life full of hope. Do you see what he says in verse 3 there in the midst of it? Through the resurrection of Jesus, he's begotten us again, he says, to a living hope. The idea there is that we can live this life confident of a hope of what good things are coming ahead. Now listen, we often use in our speech today the word hope, kind of like to refer to wishful thinking. Like we say things like, "What? Well, I mean, I, I hope everything works out with the Easter dinner. Or, or we say, I, you know, I, I, I hope uh, my flight takes off on time. Or, uh, you know, I, I hope he doesn't speak much longer. Or, you know, things like that. <laughs> it's wishful thinking, right? I hope. When God uses the word hope, God uses the word hope as an absolute expectation of coming good. The word hope from God's definition isn't wishful thinking, it's guaranteed expectation something good is coming. Because God is a miracle working God, God is the one who can do all things. When God gives hope, God's utterly dependable. And it's a guaranteed and assured thing. So when he gives us hope, it's a certain assurance, something will happen, it's a guarantee he will do as he says. And, and this hope that God gives to us within is what allows us to not be overwhelmed by the hard things we have to go through in this life. It's what keeps us from getting depressed and being overwhelmed with depression or overwhelmed with despair because of hard things or, or crushed under the weight of you know, just discouraging things. It what guards us from getting hopeless and losing all hope. And just giving up on life or, or giving up on doing what's right. God has given to us a living hope through Jesus. Jesus said in John 16, he said, In this world, you will have tribulation or trouble. 
hardship. Now, that is not in the Bible promise books. Last I checked. It's a promise of Jesus, though. In this world, you're going to have trouble. There's going to be hard things. But Jesus said, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So that means that if we have Jesus in our life through Jesus, we can live in a hard world with a hope of better things to come. We can navigate our way through this life's challenges and that helps us endure and persevere because we have hope. We have hope within. And that hope of what's coming good ahead is what keeps us able to carry on. I love Romans 15, 13. It says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The God of hope. He's the God of hope. Do you want to know why? Because he's always hoping and he has great hope in the great things that he's going to do for you. He's full of hope because he knows no matter what it looks like or what's going on in your life, he's full of hope because you know, I, I know what I can still do because I'm a miracle working God. And it may not be what we want to happen, but listen, the reality is just because what we want to happen isn't what happens doesn't mean that God's limited in his options. Doesn't mean that God's, well, I mean, I can't do what you want to happen and uh, that was my only option too. He's God. He's, he's raised his son from the dead. He has the power to do anything. And heaven is real, as Peter talks about here. And that is the greatest thing to have hope for, that beyond this hard world, there's something else to celebrate in. There's a relief from pain and hardship and sickness and suffering and sorrow. It's called heaven. And that's available to us by the God of hope and through his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says as followers of Jesus that we are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, would you agree? This world needs some hope. And there's hope available in Jesus. That's where true hope within comes from if you're feeling hopeless in your life. Well, finally, one other thing we see here that is a benefit through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is that God also grants to us a guarantee, and I stress, a guarantee of an eternal inheritance in heaven. Again, verses 3 and 4, let's look at it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look, verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Through Jesus being alive, God can give to us the free gift of eternal life through Christ our Lord. For those who receive Jesus, he says, verse 4, God gives to us an inheritance that's reserved in heaven for you and I who trust Christ. Your name becomes written in what the Bible calls the book of life, reserved, registered in heaven. Notice the Bible here in verse 4 refers to heaven as an inheritance. I find that interesting. It refers to heaven as an inheritance in verse 4. Think about it. An inheritance is not earned or worked for. An inheritance is something freely bestowed as a gift, if you would, from the father to the children as the result of relationship. All three of my daughters are someday going to be the blessed recipients of my mass wealth and fortune. 
doesn't matter how they behave their whole life long. It's theirs by relationship. They don't have to work for it, earn it. It's freely received as a result of relationship. It's a gift that's bestowed. Well, listen, that means you don't have to. It also means that you can't work for access of the inheritance of heaven because it's an inheritance. It comes as a gift as a result of relationship. You can't earn or work your way into that inheritance. Heaven's access is a free gift you must receive by faith from Jesus who offers that eternal quality of life. So entrance into heaven's inheritance is given to you as an eternal blessing, listen, as the result of becoming a child of God, which is the result of at some point receiving a spiritual birth that you might become a child of God. The Bible says to as many as receive Jesus, he gives the right to become a child of God. Then once you become a child of God, you become a joint heir with his son, Jesus Christ, and the internal inheritance of heaven becomes yours, and it's securely destined for you in heaven. So when you then die or when Jesus returns, you will enter into your eternal inheritance. And this is a free gift available. Notice how Peter and the Bible here uses some terms to describe our heavenly inheritance. He says there in verse 4 that this inheritance, first of all, is incorruptible. That means it's destruction proof. It's never going to crack or corrode or decay. That's encouraging because almost everything material on this physical earth, right? Whether it's an inheritance or whatever, it can all corrupt and decay. Maybe it's an automobile or maybe it's a home that you're hoping to inherit or maybe it's a, a vast wealth or possessions. All those things, then they can corrupt. They can get ruined on earth. But the Bible says the heavenly inheritance, the glories of heaven, will never corrupt or corrode. Nothing's going to defile them. All the beauty and glorious experience of heaven's atmosphere, it's never going to end. Listen, heaven's got a lifetime guarantee. It's never changing. It's been awesome for eternity and the glory is going to keep going on forever. It's never going to corrupt. Everything we read in the word of God about heaven, the beauty, the brilliance, the paradise of God, it's going to be just like that for those of us who enter into it. A second thing we read regarding our heavenly inheritance in verse 4 is he says that that heavenly inheritance is also, verse 4, undefiled. That word undefiled means unable to be corrupted or polluted. Even the perfect and purest things on this earth, right? They can all be defiled. It happens. We defile beautiful environments in creation and nature, right? We ruin beautiful places. We do dumb things as human beings and we defile some really good things in our life. And there's this really great thing in our life and we do something dumb or somebody else does something selfish and, and it's just all defiled now. Even the greatest relationships have the potential to go sour because people are sinful and we ruin things. Yet because heaven, listen, because in heaven there's the absence of sin, nothing ever defiles it. Nothing can defile it. No one can pollute it. L listen, you can't even mess it up once you get there. Amen. And maybe you're thinking, oh man, I want to go to heaven, but I'll probably get there and I'll mess it all up. You can't. Amen. You can't. How wonderful. Maybe you've messed up everything on this earth. The wonderful thing is the purity and perfection of heaven because of the absence of sin. That, that means this. 
problems don't exist in heaven. Can you imagine that? It's an environment where problems do not exist and it's an environment where problems will never arise. Ever. Never, ever again. The final thing we read about heaven in this verse here is it says that the heavenly inheritance also does not fade away. It doesn't fade away. That means it never suffers variation in its value or worth or beauty. Again, earthly inheritances can start to fade, right? Property value starts dropping on a house. Man, that was... Oh, I wish I got that house from mom or dad 10 years ago. The property value drops. Things fade away. I mean, I mean, this can happen. Markets go down. Families go bankrupt. A fire happens. Anything on earth can fade away. But the reality is, it says here, that everything in heaven is so sure. God's inheritance is time-proof. It never changes. The implication here does not fade away. It kind of also gives the idea that, kind of the idea is that the novelty and the newness never wears off. It never fades. And here's the best way I can illustrate that. You know, let's say it's Christmas time or birthday or maybe even Easter, right? And you, you, a child gets a gift or a, you know, a new toy or whatever. And they're like, wow, oh, wow. And they're all excited. But wow, this is so great. This is just a little action figure. And they're so excited, right? For what? About six minutes? And then the newness wears off. Is there another one? The newness wears off. So quick. Wow. The, but then the newness wears off. And we're just like that as adults too. You get a new job. And you're, Whoa, man, this new job. This new job is so, oh, so great. And then two weeks into it, the newness wears off. <laughs> Where you get a new relationship. Oh, hey, oh, oh, just, woo. Right? And you commit to marriage and you go on a honeymoon and you come back and the newness wears off. And, and, and this happens to us. Here's what I'm trying to say. When you get into heaven, the newness ain't ever going to wear off. You're never going to get bored. That thrill, the, you know, all the experience of, of being struck with wonder, that's never going to go away. Because we'll constantly keep looking to the awesome throne of God. And every time we look to the throne of God in worship continually, there will always be some new facet of God of what Jesus did for us, of the glory and the... And every time we go, wow! Whoa! And just constantly we'll be overwhelmed with gratitude and just awestruck by who the Lord is as the result of being there. And notice Peter says here that this is all, he says, verse 4, reserved in heaven for you if your faith is in Christ. It's reserved in heaven for you. Your reservation is guaranteed. It can't be broken. Your access assured. Nothing can happen in your life. You cannot do things to... Again, you can mess up all kinds of other things and ruin all kinds of other things or people can steal things from you or rob things from you or take things from you. But your reservation in heaven through your faith in Christ is assured. It's reserved. It's something you can rely upon. It's guaranteed because Jesus is alive from the dead. And when you called upon him to save you and your name was written in the book of life, now Jesus ever lives. He's the living Savior, the risen Lord, and he preserves your heavenly reservation. And he keeps your spot secure. He's preparing a place for you. And what a wonderful thing. That should always give us, can I say again, something to rejoice in. Amen. To 
to always have that reality, to celebrate no matter what's going on. My question today perhaps should be in some ways, have you made your reservation for heaven? If you have, celebrate in that. But this morning, remember, just like a reservation at a restaurant, today it's Easter. Listen, if you want to get into a restaurant or maybe the best or high-class restaurant, right? and if you don't make a reservation in advance, you're not getting in. Even if you, I mean, you might pull out your cash. Hey, I got a hundo, man. He'd be like, oh, I don't care. We're making lots of hundos with all the people coming behind you. If you don't make your reservation, you're not going to be given access. Now, if that's true of an earthly restaurant, how much more is that true the holy heavenly kingdom of Almighty God? Reservation. If you make the reservation, it's guaranteed. If you haven't made the reservation, that is something that needs to happen. And today, what a great day if you haven't yet. You can call upon the name of the Lord and make a reservation. You can call Jesus. Ask him to save you. Ask him to reserve your spot in his kingdom. Shall we pray together?